Yeah, it's good to be here. Uh, we are we are thinking about um, leadership in these talks. So we have three talks to think about leadership. And I know sometimes in thinking about leadership and the implication of leadership is serving, sometimes we might check out and say, well, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a leader in a church. Um, this is just for elders or deacons or somebody who's leading a small group or teaching a Bible study. And I don't want you to, to think that way. So just to kind of get on the front of that, um, if, if, you, if you are a Christian, then God's called you to, to be a leader, uh, a leader in one way or another, uh, leading yourself to, to grow, but pretty soon, hopefully, as you make and train disciples and spend time with other Christians in the church, uh, helping people to know and follow Jesus yourself. Uh, so that's, that's something that you want to lead people to Jesus. You want to lead people in Jesus, and you want to serve him. So... Being a leader just takes on different shapes, different seasons of our lives. But at some point, we, we have to be what God calls us to be. And so that's kind of the, the overall main point of these three talks that we're going to think about together. is simply this, that the, the model and motivation for Christian leadership is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The model of what our leadership should be is what Jesus did for us in the gospel. And likewise, the motivation, what drives us to want to lead, to, to actually lead in a way that reflects Jesus, is what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. So it gets us on both sides. It lays the tracks down, and it gives us the fuel to go and get on the tracks. The model and the motivation is Christ. I'm not so much uh, concerned with worldly leadership, secular leadership, business practices, all of those things can have their place and they're helpful in their place, but um, this is a, a Christian retreat, Christian church, and we want to look at Jesus and we want to see what Christian men are called to be, not only in the church, but also in the community as we think about that. Uh, so as we as we get started tonight, the first the first talk is going to deal with, with humility. So that's what we're driving towards, with, with humility. Uh, if you're going to lead others, then you need to know who you are. You know who you are. Uh, John Calvin famously said that in his books on the Institutes, uh, if if anyone wants to know, before they can know who they are, they first need to know who God is. And we have to come to grips with who our Creator is. So just briefly on the front end tonight, I just want to, it's not exhaustively to, to, to start off a retreat with inexhaustible topic, uh, but to begin thinking about what we, a particular aspect of who God is, and then to reflect on ourselves and then to be astounded a bit by the truth of the gospel, the privilege that we have. So, so with that, just kind of laying the tracks, let's pray and, and begin. Our Father, we thank you for this night. Thank you for the opportunity to, to peel away from what we might normally be doing on a Friday night, and to peel away from work and to set aside time, and to prioritize meeting with you through the word and spending time with brothers. We think about Lord Jesus, uh, even peeling away from responsibilities in his ministry to pray and to dedicate time, quiet communion with you, and dedicated time with his disciples to consider your word and its implications. And so it's our prayer that through this day, really, uh, into a a little over 24 hours, uh, that you would disproportionately bless the men that are here uh, with a, a grasp on 
this concept of leadership as we look through the keyhole of the gospel and put on the spectacle of your word and we would see who you want us to be. Lord, we ask for your help. We know that the Holy Spirit loves to glorify Christ. And so we ask that you would work in such a way that draw our attention to Christ. You would be glorified. And that my brothers, all of us, would be greatly helped. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's get started as we think about this concept of leadership and humility. Let's get started by thinking about the Creator. And as we as we think about the Creator, we, I wanted us to start maybe in a, in a passage we might not think of, and that is in Exodus 3. Uh, that actually was a, a passage that's a famous passage, Exodus chapter 3, that ends up being about leadership in some degree when Moses is having this conversation with God, interestingly enough, at the burning bush. But I was, what I find so interesting is not so much Moses' excuses of why he can't do what he wants to, what God wants him to do, but the way in which God answers him and lets him know what he needs to do and why he needs to do it. I think we find some, some insight for us as well. So we're thinking about who, who this God is. And we, if we just pick up reading, we see in verse, we'll start verse 3, well, verse 2. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I would turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not come near. Take off your, your sandals off your feet, for the place where you're standing is holy ground. He said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord goes on. He says, I, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I've heard their cry because of the taskmaster. I, I know their sufferings. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of the land to a good, broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And then he goes on. He's, he's, he's telling him that he's beheld, that he's seen the suffering. And then in verse 10, he says, Come, I will send you, that Moses, to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And Moses said, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? Verse 11. To bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, I will be with you. This will be the sign for you. I've sent you. You brought my people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. That's what could be said. It's worship God on this mountain. And Moses said, if I come to the people of Israel, verse 13, and said to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? And God said, I am who I am. And he said, say this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And so going forward, he reminds him again of his promises. And so you have this statement, this I am statement. And it's a famous word where we sometimes will pronounce it as Yahweh, where God is disclosing himself. Moses is at this stage here where he's, he's, he's having this introduction with God. And he learns right away that God is, uh, God is not like any of the Egyptian gods, for sure. He's in this, this bush, this burning bush and speaking to him. Uh, but but as he speaks to him, he says, my name is, is Yahweh. You tell him that Yahweh sent you, the I am sent you. And theologians will 
will, will note that this this I am refers to God's self-existence and his covenant-making, covenant-keeping nature. And so I, I find it really interesting that in the midst of Moses getting charged for his leadership responsibility, in the midst of him waffling a bit, looking at his own ability to do this, that I'm sending you to bring my people out of Egypt, God tells him to, to look at himself and to behold him, this covenant-making, self-sufficient God. And to, to look at him and say, this, this is who I am. And, and you know this covenant-making reality because all the way around it, he's, he's talking about this promise that he's made. You see it in verse 6. The, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And, and as you read that, you think, maybe we're a little bit removed from this. Like, oh, of course he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But, but how long ago were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob alive? We're, we're talking 400 years as the beginning of Exodus happens. What, what's beginning in the book of Exodus is people are wondering, since the patriarchs aren't here, they're all dead. Are the promises dead? Which, incidentally, is why Jesus quotes this verse in Matthew 22 when he says that I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That settles the resurrection debate, and it also declares that the promises of God aren't dead because God is not dead. And if God's not dead, your fathers aren't dead. They're resurrected. And if they're not dead, the promises are still alive and they're there for you. So now God is, is layering his, his, his uh, deputizing of, of Moses to go and to do this with the reality that he is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. He's faithful. And so that the reality that God makes promises to you and he's going to keep them should be something that drives you, drives you to be a humble man. But not only that, he, he says, I am. And, and that's this idea of self-existence. I don't know if you've thought about this before. <coughs> Perhaps you have. It's good to reflect on it again if you have. But has it ever occurred to you that, that everything else in creation is dependent? Dependent upon God. God is the only being in all that exists that is actually self-sufficient. He needs nothing. He needs no one. I think it was Tozer, A.W. Tozer, who has that, that famous line that says, need is a creature word, not a creator word. He has no need. He didn't create us as people because he, he, was, he was bored and like it was really quiet in the mansions of heaven. And he said, you know what, we'll just make this place. If I had some kids, I could run around. We could play t-ball on Saturday or something like that. This is not what God's doing. He's perfectly happy in the, the, the beautiful uh, fellowship of the Trinity throughout all eternity. And he doesn't create out of a lack. He creates out of an overflow of his own love. He's self-sufficient in himself. And out of a love for his own glory, he creates and he makes all that is. So everything is, is declaring his glory by virtue of one of the facts is that he made it. And it's, it's declaring that he's self-sufficient and everything else is dependent. Especially as we think about being people. Um, that God actually made us. He, he created us. 
we didn't create ourselves. Many of us have worked really hard in our lives. Some of you have charted out a course that you want to pursue, whether that's uh, education or professionally or, or uh, maybe fitness or family or just financially just working hard and you just you worked at it and you did it by God's grace. And you're successful or you're blessed and people look at you and they say, man, you've done a great job. And you might even begin to believe it. But the reality is that behind all of our works and everything that we do, we didn't really any, do anything on our own. Like We were born into this world by our parents. It, they have a role in creation, but they're not creators. They're, they're just people. And we're dependent from the very beginning when we come into this world to, for people to take care of us, to feed us. We're, we're helpless little children. And, and on and on it goes through our, our adolescent, our young days, all the way up. We're, we're absolutely dependent. And even right now, none of us keeps ourselves alive. God sustains our life. And no matter what kind of physical shape we're in or, or what we can do athletically, or how healthy we are, whatever the case may be, it's God that keeps us alive. As one person said, God doesn't have to take your life. He just has to stop giving it. You are alive because God sustains you and strengthens you. And we, we live in a world where we could just get caught up in the false narrative that it's, it's all about me and what I do and how hard I work and the identity that I shout for myself and the way in which I go. And, and, but the reality is that it's, it's just false. And the sooner we realize that, the better off we're going to be because when we actually realize that we're not the God of the universe and everything comes crashing down, we get crushed. God graciously reveals that, that he actually is the I am, not us. He's the one who's the creator and sustainer of all things, not us. That's tremendously liberating for us to be able to rest in the fact that he made us. You know, you go back to, to Genesis. Maybe we can flip over to, to Genesis. Just a reminder to Genesis chapter 1 in the creation account. It's interesting. Uh, you know, we have six kids um, ranging in age, as it was mentioned, from 12 to 28. And um, all of them, but the first one, um, have known me and my wife as Christians. The first one was a two-year-old when I became a Christian. And he was four when his mother became a Christian. And he actually remembers, even at an early age, um, me not acting like a Christian. And he's able to talk of my temper and my anger and see the change that happens. But the other kids, they haven't known anything, but they're sinful, but sanctified increasingly parents, being raised in a pastor's home. And so as we sit down and we tell the story, they'll say things like, hey, tell us the story again, how, how you became a Christian dad, how you and mom met. And uh, we got married at 18, now Christians in the Air Force. Flat, broke, had nothing, right? And so, 
the story is just a remarkable story and they just hear it and they go and you're working through the, the story and the details of it and they're just fascinated because they're like I can't believe like dad you you acted like that you were that not like you should have went to jail you know? like, <laughs> how is this dad? and it's just at some point they just look and they just like, what? God has done a great work God has saved you and saved mom. Look, look at what he's done to our family. He's been so so kind to us. So it's, it's kind of going back to that birth story, or if you will, the rebirth story that reminds you of where we came from. It's really sobering and humbling. Because if if even for a second that I would think that, that, that I'm anything because I don't do this or I do do this, that I have any basis to boast in myself, because I'm not doing that, like the guy, the tax, the guy that was the Pharisee looking at the tax collector and being like, "Oh, I'm not like this guy." And then looking over here and being like, "But I am like this guy." I mean, let me just pull up the resume. If we're gonna boast in ourselves, you go back to the beginning and you look and you say, "This is where I came from. This is who I am." God, you've been so good. And I think going back to Genesis chapter one reminds us of the reality of of where we came from. So humbling. So in creation, God comes to the, uh, the crescendo of creation. And we, we read in verse 26 of chapter 1 that God says, Let us make man in our own image, and after our likeness. And let him have dominion over the fish in the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. And the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. So, so God makes, creates people to, to, to bear his image. But he, he makes us out of the, the substance of the earth, the, the dirt, creates us. And, and I think that's just really fitting to remind us, because if you think about the, I don't know how many, I'm not a Latin guy, but I find this to be interesting. Uh, if you look at the root for the word human, what, is, what does it come from? The, the humus, which means the, the dirt. And so it's, we come out of the, out of the dirt. And incidentally, there's another English word that has that same root that really shows the connection and, and helps to make the point for what we're trying to say tonight, and that's humility. And so humans should be humble because we are the dustlings. We, we come from the dirt. We're, we're, we're not like them in Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel and saying, like, look at us, look, we built this. We created ourselves, we sustained ourselves. No, we're, we're just dustlings, and from dust we came, and to dust we will go. So how can we boast in ourselves like we're something? Now, we have the image of God, so we're dignified in that. God creates us with, with dignity as image bearers, but in the end of the day, we, we are dustlings. In and in comparison to the, the uncreated one, the source of all that is, the creator and sustainer of everything, the independent, self-sufficient one, God Almighty, we are just dustless. And a major part of our pride on a day-to-day -day basis 
and the trouble that we get into is that we think we're not justlings. We're prideful. And we have an enlarged view of ourselves. And so you, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but there's usually a disproportionate view of, of self when there's a disproportionate view of God. So it's, it's kind of like if you have a small view of God, God is small. On the other side is this enlarged view of self. But if you flip it around the other way and you have a, a large view of God, and what happens on the other side? Self gets small. So, so the bigger God is, the smaller we get. It's like John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. And so as, as we look at God and we see who he is, and that he is the creator, he's the sustainer, he's the covenant maker, he's the covenant keeper, he's the faithful one, and he wants Moses to remember, listen, you didn't make the mouth, I made the mouth, you're going to be fine to speak. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bring my people out. I'm going to save them. I'm the covenant keeper. I'm the covenant maker. So as we, as we remember who he is, and then we look at ourselves, and we're like, Look, I am just dust, but yet he cares for me. When you have that, that properly uh, focused view where you see yourself as small and God as large, then everything in life begins to give its focus. And isn't it true? I mean, isn't it when we find ourselves in sin, and maybe a brother comes alongside, maybe a, a good brother friend like a Nathan comes along the side and says, listen, you're the man. And, and what do we say when, when we repent? We say, so stupid. I was being so foolish. What was I thinking? I almost wrecked my life. I did wreck my life. But God is And it's this inverted view. And so just, guys, as we think tonight about understanding and thinking about leadership, we want to remember the reality that we have a creator who is very big. And we are the dustlings that he's made. But what's amazing, and if that doesn't drive us to humility, there's another layer of that that drives us to it. It's that that great God actually came down and became a human. He, he walked amongst the dustlings, so to speak. He, he became a person of the earth. And that's precisely the point that, that Paul aims to make in Philippians chapter 2. And so in the time remaining, I wanted just to look at Philippians 2 and think about that together. The astounding privilege that we have. If you're going to lead others, you need to know who you are. Well, this just reminds us that we are people that need to be humble. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Again, a famous verse, but I think it's certainly helpful to relook at it and see what God would have for us here in Philippians chapter 2. Just kind of setting the stage, the point of Philippians is verse 27 of chapter 1, which is, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So we're to, to, to live our lives in a, in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. So it's every single one of us, not just the Philippians, every single one of us. One of the ways that we do that is we have the same mind together with Jesus Christ. We have Christ's mind. Okay, Paul, what does that look like? Well, it looks like humility. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. 
if there's any encouragement of Christ, any comfort from love, any participation of the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, in one mind. Well, what does that look like, Paul? What does this sync up look like? Well, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in, here's our word, humility, count others more significant than yourself. In humility, count others as more significant than yourself. So this is what he's, what he's calling us to do, to, to be humble. And you say, okay, Paul, I, I think I understand that. I, I know God is big, and I am small. And if, if I'm going to do this, but I need a model. Okay, well, Paul says, great. I, I, I have the model. And I also have the, the motivation for it, because there's encouragement in Christ. There's comfort and love. There's participation in the Spirit. And it, you've, you've enjoyed something of the fruit of the gospel. So as a result of that, have this mind. What is this mind? Which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have the same mind as Christ. Make Christ's mind commonplace with you. Uh, say it another way. Make the mind of Christ not be alien to your body. Have your mind synced up with Jesus' mind. Think like Jesus. Love like Jesus. Value like Jesus. Serve like Jesus. Be humble like Jesus. Lead like Jesus. Remember when Jesus said, I don't, I don't want you to, to lead in a way that Gentiles do. They oppress it. They over, they're like overlords oppressing people. But instead, anyone wants to be great, he must become what? Servant. So, so the way up is down. Servant. And so Paul says this. He, he shows us this, that there's, what ends up coming out of this is this descending staircase down that helps us to see that the way to actually to think like Jesus is to, to live like Jesus. So you have to look at Christ's steps down. And the way he steps down are through these five steps down that are just staggering to look at. It says in verse 5, have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, so about Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, so he's in this, this form of God. He is God. He is eternal God. He, he's covenant-making, covenant-keeping, self-sufficient, eternal God. Jesus is God. He's not less than God. He's not on the JV deity team. He is eternal God. 100% God. And he exists in this position of eternal divinity. And though he was in the form of God, it says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is a thing to, to be held onto just in that place. He's, he's actually going to do something. He's going to add something. And what's interesting about this passage is sometimes people um, get into some trouble with Christology on this passage because they, they think this passage is about taking away like subtraction. But this passage is not about subtraction. It's about addition. It's the, the divine nature taking on or adding humanity 
to his being. So this divine one, Jesus, adds humanity. He says he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped, hung on to, but he, he does something. He emptied himself. He, he emptied himself. That is, again, this, this becoming of a man. He says, by taking the form of a servant. So now we're moving down this, this, this level of steps. He's, he's emptied himself. He's taking on the form of a servant. Is the third level. So if you if you just think about the reality of the eternal God becoming a man, he's, he's stepping down, he's, con- he's moving down the steps, so to speak. This is what humility looks like. This looks like unlimited privilege, worthy of praise, condescending, moving down the steps towards you and me. And he moves down the steps as the eternal God, laying aside his privileges, becoming a man. Thomas Watson famously said that the most shocking reality of Christ's life is not that he died, it's that he became a man. He says it's actually more scandalous, more shocking for God to add humanity, for God to become a man, for the creator to become part of the creation as in adding this humanity, than it is for a man to die. It's common for men to die. It's not common for God to become a man. And that that way in which he's working it down the steps of humility, he becomes a man. But he doesn't stop at just becoming a man like a great general or a king. What does he say? He says, well, I'm going to show you what humility looks like. He took on the form of a servant. So he's he's moving down the steps. It's, it's like it's not, three steps down isn't enough. We're going to go down a lower level. This one who is the king is actually going to serve. He's going to wash the feet, so to speak. He's going to get down. He's going to do the job that no one else would do or no one else could do. He's going to untie, so as it were, the, the, the apron and wash and clean and do what needs to be done like John 13. He's going to come down. He's going to stoop to work and to serve people like us. Well, that's not all the way down yet, becoming a servant. He says, being born in the likeness of men. And it says in verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, he takes that step even lower, four steps down, death. Now, now the, the servant dies, and why does Jesus die? Well, he dies as a demonstration of his humil- humility. But, but why does he actually die? Did he die because he was weak? That's not the contention of the New Testament. He didn't die because he was weak. He actually died because he was strong. Because he's a mighty Savior who is coming for us. See, see, we're the, the, the ones who've broken God's law. We've sinned against God. We've violated his commandments. Just like we sang in the song that we're supposed to be the law keepers. We, we're law breakers. And we, we've earned the penalty, which is death. The wages of sin is death. That's the, the penalty that's due. God must punish sin because his eyes are too pure to behold iniquity. So the the consequence for sin is death. 
And so Jesus comes and he, he lives that perfect life. He's obedient to the law 100% as a law-fulfilling substitute. And then he goes to the cross to die upon that cross in our place, where he satisfied God's wrath. And he removes his wrath in the penalty by fully procuring our substitutionary atonement. He pays it all. So, so why does he die? He dies because we sinned. He came for us. And so this death is another demonstration of his humility, but you have to even go lower than that. He says, even death on a cross. And so I almost envision Paul with hushed tones saying it, because it's so shocking. This is now, he's moved all the way down the steps to the place of death, but he's gone all the way down into the cellar, the basement, with this one, because death on a cross. In Roman society, it was, it was considered impolite to even say the word cross in, 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 a, in a context where they were, you'd be minding your manners like around a dinner table. You wouldn't speak of such things because it was so shameful and so filled with, with just ridicule and mocking. It's such a scandalous scene. And here is Jesus adorning himself by being affixed to the cross as a demonstration of the one who would bear our shame and die in our place. For our sin requires payment of blood, the payment of death, and he paid upon it, he paid it upon the cross. And so you see this humility going all the way down, all the way down from, from the heights of heaven, all the way down to the lowest place. He gives it all up for us. One pastor writer said, to, to think upon this, he said, the ancient of days has become the infant of days. From the heights of glory to the depths of shame. From the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth. From exaltation to humiliation. From the throne to the tree. From dignity to debasement. From worship to wrath. From the halls of heaven to the nails of earth. From the coronation to the curse. From the glory place to the gory place. That's how far he stooped for us. He, he came down for us. That's, that's the glorious privilege. That this one came all the way down for us. And what Paul is saying is, he's saying, listen, if you need any incentivization for humility, I want you to look at the cross and see where the Prince of Heaven came down for you. If you're saying, like, there's, there's no way that I could do Whatever that is. I can't humble myself to do that. It's beneath me. He says, oh, brother, listen, there's, there's something that was beneath him. But he took it for you. So that you would be exalted, that you would be lifted up, that you would be brought out of the dust. He would save you from your sin. You, you, could, you could serve for him. Now you have the model. Serve like Jesus. And you have the motivation. Jesus served me. <laughs> And then you also have the reminder from a motivation standpoint, as far down as Jesus went, God pivots and exalts him up. Look at verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. He's working its way up. He's exalted him how high, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus 
Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so he brings us down into the, the, the cellar of humility at the cross, and then he brings us all the way back up to see the, the exaltation into heaven. And he's saying, listen, brothers, to the Philippians and to us, I want you to, to count others as more significant of yourself. I want you to not look out for your own interests, but look at the interests of others. And you say, I, I, don't, I don't want to look out for my interests. I don't want to look out for other people. He says, look at the cross. And look at the, the exaltation to the throne of God. I just want you to see the, the practicality of this. Paul is writing to a Philippian church. And he's trying to get them to understand humility so that they can live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And he says, listen, I got the perfect thing. Christ and his life. And so if you're here tonight, you're thinking, man, I don't know. I, I think I should be a leader. I need to do it. Like the first step is hey, who is God? And who am I? And what has he done for me? And when you grapple with that, I think the question is, is, is basically like, what wouldn't I do for him? Who would I ever serve before him? If this is true, if the gospel is true, he gets everything, right? I'm going to give him everything. Also consider the beauty of this. The beauty of it. This is... This is your Savior coming down for you. And Paul knows if there's something that's going to that's gonna drive the Christian, the one who has, who has encouragement of Christ, has participation in the Spirit, if, if you are that person, if you're indwelt by the Spirit and you have been comforted and consoled by Christ, that which is going to drive you is the gospel. It's not law. I mean, you're not going to get anywhere just being told, do better, try harder. But when you get the one that says, in spite of you failing and falling on your face, is one who loves you. He, he knows the depths of your sin. He knows that you're from the dust. And he came for you. And he loves you. And he's going to love you to the end. And you say, man, I'll serve him. I'll follow him. It becomes the model and the motivation for our service. So brothers, as you think about this, as you begin to think about leadership, and as you wrestle through serving, and serving in the church, and serving in the community, and serving in your home, and being a dad, being a husband, being a single man, being a grandpa, being any station of life, and thinking about what it means to do this, look to Jesus, and see the great privilege that he came down for us, to bring us up to God. And he gives us this, this time period of life to serve him. What better way to show our love and our thankfulness to him but by service? So I just hope that this weekend, well, tonight and tomorrow, that as we think about this reality of the gospel, that's the model and the motivation for our service, that we would not move forward and get past it and, and forget the reality that what Jesus calls us to do is what he actually has done for us. And so we, out of joy, reflect what he's done for us in humility by serving others. Let's pray.
Father, we do want to thank you tonight for our Lord Jesus Christ. We, we think of his condescension down to humanity to, to come down for us in our salvation. We, we know there was no obligation upon him other than love for you and love for his people to do what he's done. And so, Father, we pray that out of a, a reciprocating love to him and a burden to see you glorified, that we would be men who are of the same mind, that have this mind that was in Christ Jesus, this mindset of humility, and that in that we we would find our true calling as men to be humble, to be truly human, those who reflect the good design of the Creator. And Lord, I pray that for my brothers who may be feeling the burden, the weightiness, impossible assignment that's given by the world to carve out an identity and a purpose and a meaning in this short period of life for ourselves, to, to make a great name for ourselves. Lord, I pray you would give them freedom in Christ who has already made the great name. And that we have the privilege of drawing attention to him by stewarding the time that we have, by working hard, by being humble and reflecting his love to us, even to others. Lord, would you use the gospel in our lives? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.